Our mission is to hold this position at all costs. Major Charles Whittlesey, Commander, 1st Battalion, 308th Infantry Regiment, 77th Division, AEF, Charleville Ravine, October 3rd, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 72, The Lost Battalion, part two, the first day. Some quick admin notes before we begin. Patreon shoutouts to Alex and Brian as the latest patrons to sign up to support the BFWWP. Thank you so very much, gentlemen. I'll spare you the Patreon pitch this episode, but these two gentlemen do get early access to episodes as well as some episodes that have not yet been released, and it all begins with as little as a dollar. But yes, we'll skip the pitch this time. PayPal shout out to Johan in the Netherlands. Thank you, my good sir. Your generosity is also greatly appreciated. And that appears to be it for this episode. So let's get into the Charlevoix Ravine. As the cold and raw dark gave way to yet another gray day on October 3rd, 1918, the American soldiers in the Charlevoix Ravine did not yet realize that this would be their first full day in what would soon be known as the Pocket. Similarly, their commanding officer, Major Charles Whittlesey, also did not yet know it, though he feared his command could be surrounded again too far out ahead of friendly troops like this. Over the next five days, Whittlesey and his men would face an unimaginable trial that a good number of them would not survive. It was to be an ordeal that would require a leader of extraordinarily solid and steadfast character. Whittlesey, as we know, would be that man. So what were the life events, the experiences, and the forces that shaped the man who would lead almost 700 soldiers in a nightmare epic of death and desperate survival? We need to finally take a look at the man who led the Lost Battalion. Charles White Whittlesey was born on the 20th of January, 1884, in Florence, Wisconsin. When he was born, he was already predeceased by a first son, Frank Jr., who had died before Charles was born. There would be four more siblings born to Charles's parents, three boys and a girl. Whittlesey was an old name in America. There had been Whittlesey's on the Mayflower's voyages. The family valued education, and the Whittlesey alma mater was Yale. A Whittlesey was expected to make something of himself, and young Charles looked to be headed in the right path. He was a bookish young child, and he seemed to be the type of kid who preferred his own company. Charles Whittlesey's parents had suffered the trauma of the death of their first child. 
It was something that was not uncommon in those days. But this was compounded when eight-year-old Annie, the only girl and absolutely adored by her parents and her older brother, died of diphtheria in 1894. Whittlesey's mother never recovered emotionally, and it is believed that Annie's death may have led to an emotional stunting in Charles as well. As an adult, he was to be a confirmed bachelor, and though he dated, he never became too close with anyone. Shortly after Annie's death, the family moved to Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Charles graduated high school and then went to Williams College, not too far away in Williamstown, Massachusetts. By this time, he was six foot two and lanky. He was all legs. But he was also nearsighted, so no sports. Whittlesey was still his quiet self, but he had friends, and he was known on campus for causing mischief. He graduated and went on to Harvard and Boston, bucking the family trend further. In 1908, he became a lawyer and went to work in New York City, dealing with matters of banking law and contracts and the like. He enjoyed the work, and he was a quiet and nearly indomitable lawyer in the courtroom. Politically, Charles Whittlesey held socialist views from his younger days, and he was practically a pacifist. But over the years, his views modified more towards that of a liberal Democrat. Despite being firmly anti-war in 1914 and 1915, by 1916, Whittlesey saw things differently. The Great War was inching ever closer to America, and sooner or later, the country would be in its grasp. Whittlesey was no lover of the military. However, he knew it had its place in society at large. His family had instilled in him an expectation that he would make something of himself, and public service was indirectly encouraged through the example of several ancestors. Charles believed the country needed to get ready for the coming storm, and he needed to do his part. In summer 1916, Charles became Private Charles Whittlesey at the Plattsburgh Officers' Training Camp, a roughly 30-day course that hoped to begin building a baseline of officer material in the likely event the military underwent a sudden and drastic expansion. Whittlesey did well, and he completed the course as well as anyone else. Again, he wasn't a military man by any means, but he took to the drill and discipline well. So it was that less than a year later, in May 1917, and with the United States now at war, he was picked up for officer training. Whittlesey did well in the 90-day training program, such that at the end of it, he was jumped right past 2nd Lieutenant and 1st Lieutenant and pinned with Captain's bars. Captain Whittlesey was assigned to Camp Upton in Upton, New York, the site of today's Brookhaven National Labs, where he was assigned to headquarters company of the then-forming 308th Infantry Regiment, 77th Division. Let's talk some about Charles Whittlesey's character and personality. He was quiet, but had friends, and when together with his buddies in college, his funny way of telling stories drew people to him. 
He was nicknamed the Count in college because he was very gentlemanly and always quiet and measured. Whittlesey did not use contractions in his everyday speech. He was always neatly dressed, always organized, always polite. In the courtroom, he broke apart his opponent's cases, but always in a respectful manner. As an army officer, Whittlesey did well. Again, he was not a natural-born military man, but he knew the military had a role in the world. He was a tough but fair officer, and his men respected him for it. Whittlesey did have a questioning streak, though, and this wasn't him trying to go against the military grain. He simply wanted to know the larger picture many times, and he wanted to know why he was to do what he was to do. He understood that orders were orders and that they had to be followed, but he would always fight to protect his men. Whittlesey enjoyed the simplicity the army offered him. In the army, things were simple, and there was a clear sense of right and wrong. There was the army way, and there was the wrong way. I'm sure this saying is not exclusive to them alone, but there is a saying from the Portuguese army that I learned years ago when I was a teenager and had begun talking to veterans to start preparing myself mentally for my own future service. A good man named Paulo told me this saying, which I'll say now in Portuguese and then translate. Quem entra na tropa com os olhos fechados, a tropa vai os abrir. Quem entra na tropa com os olhos abertos, a tropa vai os fechar. So, translated, that saying goes, If you go into the army with your eyes closed, the army will open them. If you go into the army with your eyes open, the army will close them. It's the second part that I want to focus on. I do not think the part about the army closing your eyes means death, although, of course, that's a potential part of military life. Rather, what I think it means is that if you go into the military aware of the bigger picture and of the world at large, the military system will teach you to narrow your vision and pay much more attention to the basics. Myself, I remember basic training as perhaps the simplest time in my life, aside from the hazy days of being pre-kindergarten age. From my reading, I believe Charles Whittlesey underwent this change in thinking in 1917 and onwards. What mattered were executing orders from his superiors and taking care of his soldiers. His eyes closed to everything else, and life took on a simpler routine. And so, it is this thinking that would lead Whittlesey to make the decisions he would make over the next five days in the Argonne Forest. Orders were orders, and despite his disagreeing with them, he would trust that the system would work, and he would do his part. On the evening of October 2nd, Major Whittlesey began sending runner messages back to regimental command as the situation developed. 
he and his battalion headquarters group crossed into the just-established positions in Charlevoix Ravine in the evening, and he sent one last message to Colonel Cromwell Stacy that night. Quote, At 294.6-276.2, 308 has reached objective. C Company, now at 294.7-276.25. B Company is at 294.8-276.5, sending scouts to railhead. Have had 90 casualties total. Will reorganize here for the night and await further orders. End quote. This was the last message that would get through the runner line that had been set up through the broken German line on Hill 198. Whittlesey, his officers, and his men now set about consolidating their position. If you've never visited the Lost Battalion Pocket, it's a hell of a thing, and let me try to paint a mental picture of the position. If you're able, get on Google Maps and enter Binarville, France. B-I-N-A-R-V-I-L-L-E. This is the village ultimately captured by the French and U.S. 368th Infantry on Whittlesey's left. And you can see the Buffalo Soldiers at Binarville episode for that story. Looking at the map, head north out of Binarville and you will soon see a fork in the road. At that fork, there is a monument to the French 9th Courassier, the unit that took part in the capture of Binarville. To the left is the D-63, and to the right is the D-66. Follow the D-66 road to the right, and you will likely already see a lost battalion marker on Google Maps. If you were actually on the road, it would take you into the Argonne and wind down into Charlevoix Ravine. The forest gives way to a wide clearing, and this is the floor of the ravine. As you enter the clearing, you will see a small farm complex ahead, and this is Charlevoix Mill. To your right, you will see a wide pond and the 77th Division Memorial, along with a large sign put up with the help of Rob Laplander. To think in terms of 1918, that pond was then on the left side of the road, and where the pond is today is where the famous photos of the lost battalion survivors were taken after their relief. You can continue on the road, which is the road that the 308th was ordered to cut. It will hug the side of Mont de Charlevoix, and at a bend in the road, you will see the stone marker noting, with a simple black arrow and lost battalion, the location of the site. If you stop on the road, you can look down into the pocket if you park at the 77th Division Memorial and walk towards the stone marker, you will see an old wagon road that opens to your right along the pond. If you take that path, wear pants and boots, because in 2018 it was overgrown and there are ticks in France, you can walk into the pocket from its western flank. Walking into the pocket from this wagon road is an experience. You will see the pocket as the men who were there saw it. What probably made the deepest impression on me was the steepness of that hillside. 
It has to be a 45 to 60 degree slope. It's hard to stand up straight and traverse that hillside. Walking on the slope that falls under the marker up on the road, you can clearly see and stand in the foxholes dug by the men of the Lost Battalion a hundred years ago. You can crouch down in them, though they have largely been filled in by the past century. Take a look around, and you'll be wide-eyed at the realization that nearly 700 men packed this hillside for five days in October of 1918. Unlike the small pocket on La Morte, the pocket in the Charlevoix was a fairly good position, at least in the beginning. The biggest advantage was that Captain McMurtry and the officers dug in on the south side of Mont de Charlevoix, thus giving themselves the reverse slope to protect against enemy artillery from the north. The wooded hillside provided cover as this area had not seen the heavy fighting the ground further south had suffered. There was a brook that ran along the bottom of the ravine floor, and that should be able to provide some water to the men as they waited for new instructions. All told, the pocket ran some 400 meters east to west along the hillside and a little out into the clearing where the pond is today, and some 75 meters from the ravine floor up the slope. From east to west, Whittlesey and McMurtry assigned sectors as follows. On the easternmost flank, E Company of 2nd Battalion, 308th Infantry. Then, G Company of 2nd Battalion, 308th. C Company of 1st Battalion in the center front. B Company of 1st Battalion. And H Company of 2nd Battalion holding the western flank, with Hotchkiss machine gun teams from D Company, of the 306th Machine Gun Battalion. The wounded would be kept in a hollow in the hillside behind C Company, and to the right of the wounded, several meters away, Whittlesey had his command post in a foxhole. When they broke through, Whittlesey and his force had lost contact with Companies D and F on the left flank of the Chavan d'Argon. Whittlesey was aware of this, but decided to wait until morning to establish contact with them. He had a runner line cutting through the German lines on Hill 198, and that should be good until the next day. Runners were busy bringing messages through the posts set up towards the rear already. Of course, it was not good enough to wait until the next day. In the night, men could hear German voices at various points around the perimeter, in the rear, 3rd Battalion of the 307th was called up and sent forward to bolster Whittlesey's line in the Charlevoix. In the absolute darkness of a rainy night in this primeval forest, only Company K of the 307th Infantry got through the hole in the German line. The other companies lost contact in the dark, and by morning, it would be too late. Company K of the 307th would be the last American troops to get through this break. When they came into the Charlevoix early on the morning of the 3rd, they already reported the runner posts at the bottom of Hill 198, on the other side of the ravine from Whittlesey's force, gone. Sometime after they crossed the crest of Hill 198, the men manning the runner posts on top of the hill disappeared. And now, 
there's a terrifying prospect. Being a lone runner in a dark and terrifying forest full of enemy troops. I had never fully considered that job until getting down to writing this podcast episode. Commanding Company K was Captain Nelson Miles Holderman, a good-looking officer in his early 30s who had just taken over the company a little over a week before. Holderman came to the 307th already a captain, having served in Mexico with the California National Guard as a private. He had risen through the ranks. Holderman was a professional soldier and well-respected. His former soldiers in the 40th Division, now replacements for this New York outfit, told their new buddies that Holderman was the real deal. He was always ready for action, and he didn't suffer fools. When Holderman met with Major Whittlesey and Captain McMurtry, his first idea was to turn his company around and go back. It was dumb to stay out here so exposed. But Whittlesey showed him the orders, and Holderman accepted them as the soldier he was. His company took over the far right flank of the pocket, relieving E Company of the 308th to try to go up Hill 198 and reconnect with Companies D and F. Things started to turn that morning. Machine guns and a trench mortar on Hill 205 began to strafe the pocket. At first, it was just harassing fire that forced everyone to move faster to wherever they were going. Soon, however, it started causing casualties. A message from Colonel Stacy made it through to Whittlesey, but it had no new orders and was 12 hours old. It had taken way too long to get through. Confirmation that the runner line on Hill 198 was cut came around 10 a.m., igniting knowing looks between the officers. There were sounds of heavy fighting to their south, behind their position. Were they surrounded yet again? Then, Lieutenant Carl Wilhelm returned from Hill 198 with a handful of men, all that remained of his Company E. He and his men had been ambushed on the hill, and he had just barely made it out alive. The Germans were back in force on Hill 198. This was proven again around midday when Captain Holderman sent his K Company up the hill to break what he thought to be an encirclement. K Company walked into heavy belts of freshly laid barbed wire, heavy machine gun fire, and aggressive German troops pushing them back towards the Charlevoix. Holderman had no choice but to retreat and settle back into his position on the right flank of the pocket. Whittlesey, McMurtry, Holderman, and several other officers now held a quick conference at the command hole in the center of the position. Whittlesey had to admit that, yes, they were surrounded yet again. Some of the lower-ranking officers spoke about breaking out to the rear now, but Whittlesey reminded them of the wounded. The wounded would have to be carried, which would necessarily slow down the retreating body, or they would have to be left behind, and that simply would not do. After some more back and forth, Whittlesey took charge of the conversation and killed it. To retreat would be a direct violation of their orders. They would simply wait until new orders made it through. 
It shouldn't be long before this encirclement business was finished and the rest of the division behind them caught up. Until then, they would wait and would carry out their orders, cut the Binarville-La Virgette Road, and await further instructions. To reinforce this, Major Whittlesey wrote a message that was delivered to every officer inside the position. Quote, Our mission is to hold this position at all costs. No falling back. Have this understood by every man in your command. End quote. Many of the enlisted men already understood the situation. Private John Nell of G Company wrote later that, quote, A little later in the day, it became apparent we were cut off and completely surrounded with machine guns set up on all sides. It was understood by all the men to keep quiet and be alert for any possible attack. We were told we had to hold our position until the rear troops could move up. Scouts were sent out to find an open way back for communication to our regimental headquarters, but no way could be found and many of the scouts never returned. Those who did return reported they could only go a short distance before they were blocked by the enemy. Many efforts were made on the first day, but to no avail. End quote. On the German side, Hauptmann Friedrich Wilhelm von Siebel, German 76 Reserve Division's Chief of Staff, and Hauptmann Reinhard Bickel determined what to do about the Americaner nest in their midst. Von Siebel and others had worked to surround the American force in the Charlevoix, and he thought he had them figured out. First, it turned out that the captured American Private Hot had been truthful with his one-word answer to Von Siebel's interrogation. There were hundreds of Americans in that ravine, and far more Americans were in that ravine than there were German soldiers surrounding them. The American commander Whitsley must not know this, or he would have used his superior force to ram through the sealed lines behind him and retreat back to American lines. He must have been waiting for reinforcements. Von Siebel knew it was time to hit the Americans and wipe them out now while they were unsettled, and while the Germans had the advantage of surprise with them. The Americaner nest was to be eliminated today, before those reinforcements inevitably came up. He set his plans in motion. To Whittlesey, there was no mistaking what was to be done now. The position was to be held. His force's first test came just a short while later that afternoon. It came when everything went quiet, a surefire sign in a war zone that something was about to go wrong. The harassing machine gun fire died off, and the trench mortar on Hill 205 went quiet. In the wet and misty silence, there was a sound in the leaves of the trees, a rustling as something moved past them through the air all around the perimeter, and then explosions amongst the crouching and dug-in doughboys. Fragments from the expertly tossed potato masher grenades bit and sliced and shredded the unexpecting American soldiers, killing some outright and maiming others. They were coming from everywhere, from the left flank of the pocket, 
from the cliff behind and above Captain Holderman's K Company on the right flank, and from above the Binaville-La Virgette Road. As the screams of the wounded rang out around the perimeter, the Germans opened up with their machine guns. Streams of bullets tore across the American position, ripping into the wet earth and American bodies. Shredded and torn pieces of leaves and branches fell as the storm of lead cut through the air. The trench mortar on Hill 205 began lobbing round after round into the pocket, the explosions killing and wounding more Americans. Those men not killed or wounded hunkered down as deep as they could into their just-scraped holes. Below the lip of the Binarville to Apremont Road, the sudden attack made the shell shotgunners and their loaders there slide down the hillside for some temporary safety. In the middle of the din, the American officers were up and prowling around their sectors, looking to maintain fire discipline. Lieutenant Red Cullen of Company H was immediately up and simply screaming at his men on the left flank, controlling them by sheer force of will. Throughout the inside of the perimeter, as bullets kicked up earth and mortar shells burst around him, Charles Whittlesey walked amongst his men in the long-legged strides that had earned him the nickname Galloping Charlie amongst his troops. Take it easy, take it easy, Whittlesey told his men in what seemed to them an unflappable calm. Do not get excited. Hold for clear fields of fire. Make it count. On the left flank, Lieutenant Cullen got his men to stop their random firing. He had them and the Hotchkiss machine gun teams of D Company, 306 Machine Gun Battalion, hold their fire a little longer. The lieutenant later wrote to friends about that first firefight in the pocket. Quote, Under cover of the machine gun fire from our rear, they came in close and bombed us with potato mashers. They just gave us hell, but our orders were to hold to the last man, and hold we would. Consequently, we could not go out after them. A couple of nervous fingers pulled their triggers, but I steadied them until the Bosch got sufficiently close to be annoying, and then I gave the order, commence firing. The crack of those rifles was certainly music to me. End quote. The concentrated and coordinated fire had results. When the Americans opened up, there were German screams heard this time as bullets hit home and tore apart flesh. The Germans recovered quickly, and a back-and-forth firefight broke out all around the perimeter. After less than half an hour, though, the enemy switched tactics. The Germans pulled back into the forest and missed to regroup, as they gathered their remaining men together and reformed lines and assault groups, they began to call across the American position to each other. From Rob Laplander's book, Finding the Lost Battalion, we have a recreation of the scene. Quote, A loud, authoritative, and definitely Teutonic voice echoed across the ravine. Rudolf, it called. From somewhere near the left flank, a disembodied voice answered, Here! Heinrich! came another call. Ich bin hier! This from somewhere up above and toward the middle. Now, what in hell was this? Adolf! Ja, here! from the other side of the ravine. It appeared as if the Germans were calling the long roll. Eitel! Here! 
The doughboys exchanged uneasy glances as more and more names were called out and answered from seemingly all around them. How many of them could there be? End quote. The Americans didn't stand it for long. Once they recognized what it was, psychological warfare meant to terrorize the surrounded doughboys into thinking they were hopelessly outnumbered. Some had choice responses for the Germans. Officers like Lieutenant Cullen would harshly bark out for the doughboys to shut up as they were potentially giving away their locations by calling out. After their roll call, a German NCO somewhere called out, Alles zusammen, eind, zwei, drei. With that, there was a rush of pounding boots through the woods and a shower of grenades sailing into the pocket. Battle exploded again as doughboys engaged any enemy they saw. Rob Laplander notes that at this point, the Midwestern replacements were as good as the New York veterans. The last week in the Argonne had been a brutal but effective marksmanship school. If you didn't learn how to shoot, you didn't survive. The trench mortar shells started coming in again when the battle restarted, and that trench mortar began to cause serious trouble. On the left flank of the pocket, a shell made a direct hit on the Hotchkiss team of Sergeant Robert Graham, killing him and his entire crew. With that flank in trouble from increasingly close German pressure, Captain George McMurtry rushed over to that part of the line with 15 men. By the time he reached the line, half the men had been dropped by German fire, and McMurtry himself had taken a bullet through the knee. On the right flank, the Germans rushed the machine gun team, scared off the crew, and actually ran back off into the woods with the Hotchkiss. Casualties among the gun crews there were also taking a toll on fire going out. And to make things worse, the two commanding lieutenants, Marshal Peabody and Morris Revens, were soon severely wounded and out of action. The Germans crept in ever closer to the American perimeter, but they were unable to break in other than when they grabbed that machine gun. Any time a German revealed any part of himself, a bullet promptly smashed into him. A machine gun above the Binarville la Virgette Road tore the ground on the north side of the pocket, forcing everyone there to slide halfway down the hill for protection. Some intrepid doughboys fired the last of the rifle grenades toward where they thought the machine gun might be, but no luck. As evening set in the October sky, Germans once again began to pull back. They had briefly broken into the American line, but otherwise had failed to destroy the nest. German Major Manfred Hunneken, commander of the 254th Infantry Regiment and whose troops had conducted part of the assault, was forced to admit to Hauptmann von Siebel at division headquarters that he had been unsuccessful. By darkness, the battle was over although machine gun bursts still harassed the Americans on occasion. Major Charles Whittlesey and his officers worked on assessing the situation and on getting ready for the next attack. Whittlesey had already had a homing pigeon sent out with a message that he was cut off, he had heavy casualties, and that he needed ammunition desperately. 
Ammunition in the pocket was cross-leveled where possible. Men were redistributed to gaps in the line. Private Gust Dahlgren was one of the 15 who had gone off with Captain McMurtry to the left flank. Dahlgren later wrote, quote, Later the same day, after we had dug pretty fair holes, 15 of us were taken at intervals and detailed to follow a captain. He sent us out to find the location of our machine guns. We took over and a good many of the fellows were lying around, having been killed. They looked fairly natural, not torn up. However, about the next day, the artillery and mortifier tore things up and the unburied bodies got badly mangled. End quote. The wounded were dragged into the center of the pocket, where they were settled in the hollow close to Whittlesey's command post hole. Whittlesey spoke to Private Jack Garris, who had become the point man for the medical team. Garris told him that they were already out of medical supplies. The dead were already being rifled through for any field dressings they might have, as well as shoelaces to hold wounds together. It was already that bad. The situation in the pocket was worse overall. The last of the food was already gone as well, and some doughboys were sent to see if they could get any food off the German dead close to the perimeter. The last of the grenades had been fired off in the afternoon battle, too. There was still ammunition, but it would have to be managed carefully. As darkness fell on the Charlevoix Ravine, the wail of wounded Germans pierced the night. In the pocket, some of the wounded Americans did the same as they coped with the terrible and unimaginable pain they were in. The doughboys knew they had survived the first test of their line, and that further attacks could come at any point. But they also knew Major Whittlesey's orders, no falling back. Have this understood by every man in your command. They understood. Questions, comments, or concerns? Please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at www1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.